Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week, we have filmmaker Matt Wolf on the show. No relation to Kate Wolf. Oh, <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> this is not, not an nepotistic thing. No relation. Just not, your, not your child. Not my child. No. <laughs> My grown child. Thanks, Dea, again, for making me feel so young. Um, and he's joining us to talk about his new movie, which is called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. Yeah, it's a really interesting movie. It's about this woman named Marion Stokes, who Matt will tell us more about. But she recorded 24 hours a day, eight VCRs going at a time to eight different channels, starting in 1979, up until almost the minute after she died in 2012 during the, the coverage of the Newtown shooting. Just a, a huge television event as well. Right. Yeah, so she created and amassed this huge archive of local TV programming, major news events, just everything, essentially everything that happened and was shown on TV from 1979 to 2012. Yeah. I related to this in a way because I used to save newspapers. It was really hard really? for me. Yeah. For... A few months, I saved newspapers, and then I stopped. I Wait, was able to let it go. But in the same way that I think in the film you get this idea that how can you let go of something that's so important when you're seeing these stories, they feel monumental. It's hard to just let them disappear into the ether. She wanted to hold on to them, to reexamine them. And I could completely relate to that, although I thought I didn't end up going down that road. But I could have. What instigated your... You're saving. Was it a particular world event? No. You know, I did save the September 11th paper. Mm -hmm. Which paper was it? New York Times. Mm. And you still have it? I still have it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But it was later than that. It was, I think, in mid-aughts where I really started to get into the newspaper, and it was hard for me to let it go. What made you decide to eventually let it go? Um, I think I might have I stopped subscribing to the daily paper Oh, so it was. So I didn't have it around uh, anymore to look at in the same way, which is probably a good thing for me because I have the, that tendency, but not. No one has it quite like Marion Stokes, it would seem. That's true. Okay, so let's get to our conversation with Matt Wolf. Great. We are very happy to have the filmmaker Matt Wolf in studio with us today. Matt Wolf has made documentaries about the musician Arthur Russell called Wild Combination, a portrait of Arthur Russell, Teenage, and Bayard and Me. And his new film is called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, about Marion Stokes, a woman who for 30 years recorded television 24 hours a day. We're so happy to have you, Matt. Thanks for having me. I think just to get started, would you just tell everyone a little bit about who Marion Stokes was. Well, Marion Stokes was a lot of things. She was trained as a librarian. She was involved in radical politics and did activism around Cuba in the 1950s and 60s. She was a single mother, an African-American woman. And after trying to defect to Cuba, she lost her job as a librarian. And as she was looking for work, she came across an organization called Wellsprings Ecumenical Center in Germantown, Philadelphia, where she was from. And that organization was founded by a man named John Stokes, a Catholic activist. 
And she started doing clerical work, but soon kind of rose through the ranks and became the co-producer of their local television program, which was a kind of consciousness-raising session broadcast on Sunday mornings called Input. And her and John Stokes co-hosted the show and brought together kind of huge array of people from reverence to like tarot card readers to ex-prisoners to secretaries, just an incredible cross-section of people. And they fell in love when they were doing the show. But John Stokes had his own family. He was from a kind of family of means from Philadelphia. And they crossed all of these barriers of race and class and forged a relationship. Then for years, Marion started pursuing this project, this taping project. It started in 1979 during the Iranian hostage crisis, which... Marion recognized as a kind of paradigm-shifting event in news media. And now, historically, it's considered the birth of the 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. So she continued taping through the rest of her life and accumulated a monumental and unprecedented archive of American media from local news and public service announcements and commercials to, you know, epoch-defining historical events. And so she would tape 24 hours a day, multiple channels, different VCRs going she only was taping news or were there other things that she focused on? Oh, no, it was 24-hour feeds of television. And that's what's so unprecedented about the archive because there's so much cultural history and information in the detritus of popular culture and these kind of esoteric local human interest stories. So she has, yeah, she has all the big events in the nightly news, but she also has the flow of cable news when it kind of came to rise and C-SPAN and local television channels. So it really encompasses the totality of media. How did you find out about this archive? How did you find out about her? Well, Marion's collection, 70,000 tapes, was acquired by the Internet Archive, which their website is archive.org. And mm -hmm. they're kind of like a pirate library that's aiming to collect all human knowledge and all media and to make it accessible for free online. And they understood Marion's vision and saw the opportunity to potentially digitize her entire collection and to make it accessible. So they acquired her collection. And these, you know, crates and pods were shipped across the country. And when that happened, there was a little bit of press. And I came across a blog post. And I make films with lots of archival footage. Mm. So this idea of an archive that basically contains everything and anything definitely appealed to me. And the challenge of that, really, how do you grapple with something so formless and monumental? And so I tracked down Marion's son, Michael, and went there to visit him. And I arrived at Marion's apartment at the Barclay Apartment Complex, which is probably one of the toniest and fanciest buildings in Rittenhouse Square, a very fancy part of Philadelphia. And so that surprised me. And then I went mm -hmm. upstairs and I came across her original apartment, which was filled with hundreds of Macintosh computers in their original boxes. So that was obviously a surprise. I had no idea that was part of it. That was still in the apartment. Yeah. Michael, her son and her personal secretary, Frank, were living in the building and, oh. you know, liquidating all of the assets from her collection, tens of thousands of books and hundreds of computers. And so Michael and Frank and I went across the street to have lunch at the restaurant where Marion would have her daily martini. As they were talking, they started to cry. And I realized that this isn't just a story about an archive. It's a very emotionally intense family story. And that's what kind of propelled me to make this film that interweaves both of those things. It seems like she was a complicated woman, maybe interpersonally. She had been adopted. It was hard for her to trust people. She was very critical. Her first marriage broke up because she was so critical of her husband and then she had her single mother and it sounds like her and Michael had a difficult relationship at times but at the same time her work 
was in the service of people and this idea of accessible knowledge. And that's why she was so drawn to computers, you know, because the technology would help other people educate themselves. And it sounded like as a boss for the people who worked for her, she was a wonderful woman to work for. I would love to hear your take on why were you able to get a sense of what she wanted by recording 24 hours a day? Yeah, I mean, there was a certain level of insight, but also dysfunction to this project, and that there was tremendous sacrifice, but also a kind of human toll towards pursuing something to this end. And I think the two things can exist in visionary projects, this kind of potent combination of insight and dysfunction. It was also a question when I was making the film is, did she ever say really clearly and succinctly what the mission was? And no, I mean, I've done projects about other artists and people who do expansive and monumental things that in the moment feel like there's no logic to, that it's kind of out of control. But when we look back at the course of her life and the scope of the collection, it's clear that there was a kind of focus and coherence to the project that was guided by a certain political conviction. And I think what Marion did is she recognized that there was a huge, vast corpus of knowledge that was being discarded into the trash can of history, and that no mainstream institutions were pursuing it, and let alone the networks themselves were discarding their archives. And so she saw an opportunity to preserve media in its totality, and she pursued it in her own privately, which I think is the ultimate radical gesture is, you know, as a black woman of a certain generation, she was inevitably excluded from mainstream institutions, Mm -hmm. but also issues of intellectual property are wrapped up in this material. It's owned by so many different entities and most established academic institutions or libraries wouldn't pursue this, but also wouldn't necessarily see the value in it. So she did. And the focus of her project was to capture everything. It wasn't editorialized. She wasn't looking to analyze the media or to selectively record things that she felt was significant. There was a kind of ideological agnosticism to the whole project and a certain level of restraint as maddening as the whole thing was because her focus was on recording. I see. She was critical of the media as well, though. I mean, she participated in making television. She had radical politics. She must have seen the way media worked, especially by watching television so much. Yeah, I mean, I think starting as early as 1979 during the Iranian hostage crisis, which really was a 444-day soap opera, a news soap opera that was being broadcast nightly. This was a new thing, and it was playing alongside nighttime talk shows and was popular. There was an increased volume of news production and oversaturation of information. And she recognized immediately that the news is produced through the predilections of its producers and that it will impact public opinion. She was concerned about that. She saw that important information was being lost as a story developed in real time. And I think she felt like it was important for people to have access to good information to understand what really happened. So in a way, there's an activist dimension to the project because she was doing this to protect the truth. When I started the project, it was before Trump was elected. So this whole discourse around so-called fake news was not part of our political conversation, but this was at the core of what she was thinking about in 1979. Yeah, there's a really amazing parallel in the film that a media theorist makes between the Iranian hostage crisis unfolding and then the American people becoming hostage to this crisis because it's covered in the news. And that, of course, reminded me of our current situation where it seems like, you know, the court drama of Trump that just keeps on playing out and does kind of erase other news stories that could be 
more of the focus because mm-hmm. it has this soap operatic, you know, there's all the daily, the same, yeah, daily, right. and the, all the same characters and the pathos as it's you were mentioning. It's a soap opera. Exactly. It's a soap opera, and then it's being depicted now through completely ideologically biased cable news channels, which gave rise to a reality television stars, the president. So these were the kind of concerns Marion had at the onset of the 24-hour news cycle, and they've expanded and exacerbated in such an extent that they're threatening democracy. Something that really struck me while watching the film is the potential of this archive, which I think, as you said, it's so vast, and it's really a challenge to figure out even how to think approach it but you do this really beautiful thing in the middle of the movie where you have a juxtaposition of four different channels airing footage on 9-11 in the morning it seems like CNN is the first to pick up the story of the Twin Towers and then the others follow it's this instance of sort of seeing what this archive can do in the biggest event of certainly probably the past 20 years. How many times did you see something like that where you're like, oh my God, here's the potential? How do you sort of keep from using that potential in the movie because it would have been endless? And how did you choose that particular moment? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to really demonstrate what the archive can do, as well as kind of do artistic things in terms of showing the passage of time. So Mm. there were kind of a few strategies as we started dealing with this formless archive. One was to represent a kind of unconventional timeline of history through the duration of our story. And, you know, I chose epoch-defining historical events as well as these kind of forgotten marginal histories. And of course, I discovered things I wasn't looking for in the process. But I also wanted to do almost like video art style collages of supercuts of certain imagery. So I flagged every shot of a moon or a sunrise. Mm. I flagged every shot of flowers, things like that. But then I also wanted to demonstrate, I wanted to go deeper into a historical event that was relevant to the story. So we went deeper into the Iranian hostage crisis, but I also wanted to show flow, the possibility of understanding how the juxtaposition of everything that's happening on television across networks is meaningful. And that's what happened in the 9-11 sequence. It was an event that's, you know, media historical in the sense that almost all of us of a certain age range, a huge age range, experience that event via television and Mm -hmm. have a visceral and direct memory of the first time you saw it. You know, and there's a few events like that, like the man walking on the moon or JFK's assassination, but this is of a different kind of media milieu and it's very visceral for people. But to this point of trying to show what the archive can do, there was an earlier rough cut screening of the film and people are saying, you're saying the archive is important, but how do we know the archive is important? And that's what compelled me to pursue doing this kind of condensed and cursory history of the depiction of police brutality in the news. Mm-hmm. It was, I already had found some stories that had some explicit racist bias in the reporting of them. And I went looking for more and it was very much there. And I think to go much deeper into that story would unveil a lot of a lot of meaning and kind of show how the media perpetuates police brutality by embedding racist ideology within the depiction of that violence. But I think that the through line through this whole thing was violence. I thought about Marion watching television 24 hours a day and really the trauma of seeing so much violence. I watched 700 hours of hundreds of thousands of hours in the collection and it's daily news is very catastrophic, whether it's 9-11 or more minor acts of violence and catastrophe and disaster. And one of her episodes on input, it was actually a series of episodes, was dedicated to violence. The advertisement in the local newspaper said, violence for breakfast, watch input on Sunday. I thought Marion was really 
direct in terms of her discussion of violence, not just the representation of violent events, but the structural violence of news itself and how it mirrors the structural violence Mm. of society. And I think rather than one political orientation or point of view, that this preoccupation with the structural violence of the media was something that compelled Marianne through the course of her life. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Matt Wolf, whose new film is Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have author and professor of English and African American Studies at UCLA, Yogita Goyal here in the studio with us today. Yogita's latest book is called Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Yogita, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a novel called Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck, who's a German writer. The novel was published in 2015, and it was translated into English in 2017. Okay, what's it about? It's about a professor, a classics professor, Mm -hmm. who has retired and is thinking about looking back on his life. He sees a group of African refugees in Berlin and starts to think about what his relationship to them could look like. So the novel is about what it means for a German citizen to relate to, to interact with African refugees that are in the national space. Interesting. And what brought you to this book? I was living in Berlin over the summer, and so that's when I read it. It's a novel. I've been reading a lot of contemporary novels about refugees, and I think this is one of the best ones. It's really subtle. It gets you to think about language. It gets you to think about what does it mean to have compassion? What does it mean to relate? You know, the professor at the center of the story is from uh, East Germany. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to think about though that historical transition, right? We're now at the 30-year anniversary of the, of the fall of the Berlin Wall. To think about that historical transition from the Cold War to the contemporary situation around forced migration. Will you tell us the title again and the author? Jenny Erpenbeck, Go Went Gone. Thank you so much, Yogita. Thank you. We've been speaking with Yogita Goyle. Her latest book is called Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Matt Wolf, whose new film is Recorder, The Marion Stokes Project. When you're, you're saying you watched 700 hours of television to make this documentary, I'm wondering how do you even, st- where do you even start if you with a collection like this? I mean, how do you get a handle on it if you want to depict it for what it is? Well, we had to index Marion's entire collection of 70,000 tapes, which was quite a task. So Marion, being a librarian, wrote metadata, each spine of her tape, the, the date, the network, the time period, and sometimes other information like Oprah or Jesse Jackson or the move bombings. So at the Internet Archive, we created a conveyor belt system 
Um, Marion's tapes were stacked spine up in cardboard filing boxes, and we would bring them down the conveyor and take a picture from an elevated camera, and you could zoom in and read what she had written on the spines of the tape. So I put out a call for volunteers, and miraculously, you know, 50 people from around the world signed up to log data. And we used a shared Dropbox folder and a Google spreadsheet, um, and people started transcribing those spines. And one volunteer rose to the occasion and became a full-time volunteer, or a full-time archivist, not a volunteer. <laughs> and, um, you know, she completed 70,000 entries on this Google spreadsheet oh, that we have. Oh, my God. And I use Wikipedia because Wikipedia has a summary of each year. And it's nice because it's a mix of those historical events Mm -hmm. that everybody cares about and things that are weird. Anything from like the collapse of the Berlin Wall to the collapse of the Miss America stage. And so I made a kind of wish list of dates that ran that gamut. And she would find the, the tape in the database. Someone at the Internet Archive would have to get a forklift, take down the pallet, find the box, get the tape. And then that tape would go to a preservation house who would digitize it. Marion recorded an extended play, so these tapes were six to eight hours long. And then I had to, you know, go through them at 10 times speed, marking things that I thought were of interest, whether it was a shot of a cat or, you know, the news story I was looking for or something totally weird that one could never search for. And then totally strange, historically ironic things like seeing Kellyanne Conway, then named Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, advocating for Bob Dole. So, you know, it was a kind of super speed scanning through 700 hours. But, you know, keep in mind, I digitized 100 of 70,000 tapes. So I hardly scratched the surface. Oh, my God. What what other... It was crazy. It sounds crazy. What other things did you find in that archive where you were... that surprised you or... I mean, I'm sure there was a lot, but like this Kellyanne Conway thing. I mean, there's a lot, but I think for me, I I found stuff that was just interesting to me. I'm interested in the history of the representation of AIDS. So Mm. I, I found a lot of stuff and I looked for stuff. And there were iterations of the film where that was part of it. And I had to show my own certain level of restraint to not make the film just showcase stuff that was interesting to me, but to show stuff that was relevant to Marion and her Mm -hmm. story. And the question was always, how does the archive point to Marion and how does Marion point back to the archive? So I found tons of incredible, fascinating things and funny things and ironic things. But, you know, I was often looking through the prism of Marion's preoccupations and interests, Mm -hmm. Um, the media and, and its representation of itself and its intrinsic bias and and ideology, you know, the representation of Cuba and radical politics, race in America, violence, and the emergence of technology and the democratic possibilities of technology. I was really surprised um, watching this that the networks don't save or at the time at least weren't archiving their own materials or would have a collection or um, you mentioned that when Marion went back to look at the television show that she had made, uh, she wasn't able to even view it because the technology, the Betamax tapes that was on were then out by that time outdated. So is it different now? I mean, now things digitized just by nature because it is digital media more? Or is it, I, it is different now, but accessibility is a real issue. I think you know, storing physical media of networks' entire archives was not feasible. They have archives of stuff, even 16 millimeter news stories, but not complete archives. Particularly local news, no, those are very hard to find. But, um, 
you know, now the networks obviously save what they're doing because it's digital, but they're, they're only motivated to generate access if there's some sort of value or licensing value in the material. So as a filmmaker, I deal with network archives regularly, and um, you have to pay money to even preview material, mm -hmm. and a lot of material has restrictions on it, so you can't even preview it. And then to license that material is very prohibitive unless you're operating in a very commercial level. So if you think about reporters or scholars or more grassroots filmmakers or artists, just access to broadcast material is in really restrictive. There is the Vanderbilt Television Library at Vanderbilt University, and they have collected the nightly news broadcast from the major networks. And you can, they have a lending library of DVDs in a way, but it's not accessible online. And it's, it's limited in its scope of what it contains. Whereas if you want to do really rigorous reporting, if you want to unearth a history of police brutality as depicted on the news, I think you you need a, a corpus of media that goes deeper. And, you know, I was very much interested in the margins of this collection and, and what I was calling the detritus of pop culture. This kind of stuff for so many people is so meaningful in terms of how it defined our values and aspirations and, and tastes and, and bias. And there's so much there beyond the mainstream nightly news reports. Mm -hmm. Something I really noticed in the film is that, you know, we think of news as just a daily feed, but that you can really only tell the the meaning of something retrospectively. The news is is truly news, you know, ten a decade later, 20 years later. I was wondering if your understanding of history changed making this film at all. Yeah, I mean, something I think about history in general as a filmmaker is that, you know, there's there's often an emphasis on social change and understanding the social progress and change, but I think what's often most interesting about history is what doesn't change and under and analyzing kind of persistent themes and patterns in history that just don't change. But for me, rather than uh, an ins historical interpretation of the media or, or key events, for me, the experience of making a film like this is to actually simulate and experience the passage of time. I think it's rare for us as people to have the experience or to have experiences in which we feel the passage of time. And, you know, you can go to a, a mu an encyclopedic museum and, and to go through the galleries and in visual ways, see the evolution of civilization through objects. And, and I, that's what I love about museums. But to do that with media, to scan at 10 times speed at material across three decades of really critical history, I yeah. think that that is a really unusual and special experience to have that I was able to, to experience in this film. I wanted to ask you about some of the contradictions in that Marion sort of embodied, and Kate, you sort of talked about it earlier, but she was a radical, but she, she died very wealthy, that she was sort of tied to this now kind of outdated system of recording, right, in this outdated cable news cycle that we you know, probably most of us don't really engage, at least in this room, probably don't engage with that much anymore, while also purchasing all of these Apple products, essentially hoarding Apple products. She had she had an iPhone, but again, she was just using these old VCR tapes. She seemed to be quite close with her staff, but very distant from her family. How did, you know, I, I think it can be difficult to make a, a clear narrative out of people like that because there's so many things that are pulling them apart. How did you reconcile these contradictions within her as a person? Yeah, I mean, that is what makes an interesting subject of mm. a film. I think in a lot of ways, I, I'm interested in the word problematic. 
Marion was problematic in a lot of ways. Um, she she treated people in her family poorly. Um, and I like the idea of a problematic visionary, someone who doesn't fit into the mold of heroism, someone who can have radical politics but be an evangelist for a neoliberal corporation, who has allows for the full spectrum of complexity in life, but um, you know has a through line as well. And I think that's what's satisfying to me in making films is to to honor the complexity of people and to not depict them through a kind of rose tinted lens, but to to be fair and critical. And I, one other way I think about it is um, being a critical feeler. We, mm -hmm. we reward people for being critically thinking. But I'm interested in looking at people with a lot of empathy, but with a, a certain critical distance and to better understand the the work that they have left behind or the purpose that they felt in their life through the complexity of the decisions and choices they made and to try to understand that through an emotional and empathic point of view. That's beautifully said. One thing in the film that um, she does have a very loving relationship, it seems like, with John Stokes, her her husband, until, they, until he died. Um, and the last, I, I guess I'm wondering about the last, you know, however long years of her life after she had she stopped making this television show she stopped working after she married this wealthy man they lived in an apartment to get this beautiful apartment and and what did they do during the day they just watched television and recorded it what was their life like what was her life like towards the end of her life i mean she read tens of thousands of books she engaged in new technology. She was an avid investor in Apple Computer. She was analyzing the market. She read every newspaper. She watched multiple networks of television every day. I mean, I think he had his own interests and his own passions. He was very involved in an esoteric Catholic subculture called Mary's Gardens, where flowers were named after the Virgin Mary and um, devotional gardens were created around the world. I mean, and he did scholarship on Catholicism with his politics. So they had intellectual projects and she was saturated with knowledge. Later in her life, after John died, she forged this kind of surrogate family with these assistants and they would go out for drives. They would go out to fancy restaurants where she would kind of hold court. She would sometimes go shopping and for shopping it meant that they would have to go get stuff from from the store and bring it out for her to look at in her limousine. She had good fashion. She was very generous too. She would go out to a restaurant and have her assistants go back and give Apple computers to people who work there. And I think quietly and privately she did some philanthropy as well. Mm -hmm. um, so she led an active and rich life but it was reclusive and private. And there were a lot of barriers between other humans because I think she struggled with issues of control. And do you think that she would be, I mean, how do you think she would feel about what happened with her archive? Do you think, I mean, I know it's hard to say you don't know exactly why she was doing it, but is that I what mean, she would have wanted? Her life's work, which people thought was worthless, is was valued so much by people that they've made a commitment and and set out intentions to make it publicly accessible to people. I mean, that was her dream. And it's very unique to Marion. She's really a futurist. Of course, she, she is recording on this outmoded analog media. And she starts her project in 79 before the advent of the internet. And, you know, 
to think that she pursued a project with goals that could be accomplished with technology that didn't exist. It's just so fitting. The, the prescience of it is, mm. you know, she an- anticipated a kind of possibility for her project that is being actualized by other people with, with shared values and shared goals had from a different era. And is the archive available now? No, the, I mean, the Internet Archive has a monumental task ahead of yeah, them. And so the, the intention's there, but, I mean, to, you know, I digitized 100 tapes. That's real-time digitizing of 700 hours. I mean, they have to develop a unique workflow, but also it's very costly. I think it'll cost about $2 million to oh do it. Gosh. But, I mean, the Internet Archive is archiving the entire Internet with the Wayback Machine. They've pursued projects of this scope and ambition before. So I think there's the intention is there and, and the process and, and resources are still falling into place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. that seems like a good place yeah. to end. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for Thank being you, Matt. here. We've been speaking with Matt Wolf. His new film is Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Matt. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 